And let's be clear, we exist only as a Great Commission people. We exist in order that sinners will hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe and be saved from all the nations. The marching orders of the Church of Jesus Christ were to go into all the world and preach the gospel because the gospel has the power unto salvation. This is what it means to follow Christ. A call to live, a call to die, a call to spend your life for Jesus here and around the world until he returns. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken, and we're continuing our conversation today on the missionary task. If you remember the overview that was provided earlier, phase two of the missionary task is evangelism. And so we want to explore today and look at what does evangelism look like? How do we do it? What are some of the essentials related to effective evangelism? Our guest today is Elliot Clark. Elliot is a graduate of Southern Seminary with a Master of Divinity. He and his family served in Central Asia as cross-cultural church planters, and he works with Training Leaders International and is also the author of several books, including Evangelism as Exiles, which we'll talk some about today, and a, a more recently released book, Mission Affirmed, Recovering the Missionary Motivation of Paul. And I'm really excited to have this conversation with Elliot today. Elliot, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. All right. Why don't you start by just telling us some about yourself and your family? Well, my wife and I have been married now for over 22 years, and we have three children. We have a son who's in college, two girls in high school, and um, our upbringing was in the Midwest, grew up in the church, was exposed to the gospel at an early age, but also to mission. So one of the, I think, blessings uh, for for me personally growing up as I did as a pastor's son is I just saw missionaries coming in and out of our home and our church all the time. So both my wife and I, from an early age, really, uh, as teenagers, the Lord leading us into to mission work. And yeah, I guess that's a little bit about us. We actually met in high school and were married in college. So I feel like we've been on this journey together for a long time. Okay, that's cool. I love the love the background of the story there. You mentioned uh, the mission field, and so I mentioned in the intro that you previously served on the field. Can you tell us some about where you served and what that looked like and how you got there? Back in 2001, shortly after we were married, my wife and I spent a summer in Eastern Europe. We were doing a, a missions internship and also teaching English, trying to do personal evangelism through that avenue. And we got back to the States late August and September 11th happened just a couple of weeks later. And I think it just opened our eyes to the Muslim world and the needs there. And so we, uh, through a long process, just began to consider if the Lord might lead us to work work in the Middle East or Central Asia. Honestly, if you'd have told me in 2001 or asked me, where is Central Asia? I couldn't answer that question. And I think most people don't know. That's okay. So really, after seminary and while actually members of Clifton Baptist Church, our elders really started to steer us to some missionaries they knew on the field in Central Asia, connected us with them. And so it was really through the leadership of our elders that we kind of discerned this was where God was leading us, both the sense of the need in the Muslim world and then and then local church leadership. You know, I didn't mention this to you earlier, but you obviously attended Southern Seminary for your Master's of Divinity training. 
What led you to Southern? You know, there's a lot of different choices and options out there. Why did you come to Southern? Well, that's a really long story. But uh, so while I was in while I was in college, actually was exposed to the teaching of John Piper through audio cassette tapes, if you know what those are. And the guy in the dorm next to me, we were listening to those sermons on Romans 8 together. He decided to go to a Ligonier conference in Florida. He came back from there and said, hey, there was this speaker there named Al Mohler. I've never heard of him. There's a seminary in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Did you even know about it? Neither of us knew about it. So it was through his influence. And then just considering other seminaries, a big influence or factor for us is our families from Ohio originally. So being able to be somewhat close to home, but also a seminary that we trusted and respected. I want to switch to the topic of evangelism. You know, you wrote a book on evangelism, evangelism as exiles. Why did you write that book? The easiest, shortest answer and the truest answer is that uh, I was asked to. So Ivan Mesa, an editor at the Gospel Coalition, approached me back in 2018 about writing a book. And I I initially told him no, <laughs> because to me, the two books you never write are one on, on prayer or evangelism, because like whoever thinks they've reached the point where they can write a book and tell people how to do, you know, their prayer life and their evangelism is so amazing. But as the more I thought about it, I had been for a long time, I've studied and loved the letter of first Peter. And there are a lot of factors that, that interest me in, in that letter, but I just noticed over time, the real emphasis on evangelism within the letter. And, and honestly, if you look at a lot of the New Testament epistles, you don't see a lot about evangelism, uh, just to be honest. But I think First Peter has some real nuggets of of truth and, and help for us. And the other aspect of that is, as you know, Peter writes to his readers and calls them exiles, not literal physical exiles that as if they've been displaced from their homeland, but by virtue of social and familial ostracism, they are exiles. They're not necessarily facing outright physical, political persecution, but they're ridiculed for their faith. They're mocked and reviled by family members. They're they're kind of pushed out and into the margins because of their morality. And I just thought, wow, that's coming back to the U.S., being gone for a little while, coming back and living in the U.S. and just seeing churches and Christians wrestling with, wow, how do we live in this new uh, what obviously people have identified as post-Christian West. How do we live in a in a society where we don't have maybe the power and influence we once had culturally? And so I wanted to take the the lessons I was learning in First Peter and apply them to how we might pursue evangelism in this new social situation. I love that. You know, I, one of the things I love about the book and even just using that language or that that identifier is, you know, whether you're here in North America, so you, you know, you can, in many ways, you can write the book geared towards people in North America who are increasingly strangers, aliens, exiles in their own context, but also it's a book that very much applies also to, to the missionary on the field, because they also are in many ways, they're strangers, aliens, sojourners, exiles in their land as well. So I love that the book has kind of a dual focus in that whether you're in North America or you're in a foreign context, the way that you think about evangelism as an exile, as a stranger, as a foreigner, there's some some application there. So I love that focus. You know, when a lot of people think about missionary work, one of the first things they think about is evangelism. In fact, some people will say missionary work, they we equate those two things. Missionary work is evangelism. We know that missionary work is broader than evangelism. 
but I, I do want us to think about this idea of evangelism. So what is evangelism? How would you define and describe evangelism? Yeah. So I would say that evangelism is just simply telling the good news of Christ to others. And then of course you have to flesh that out. What does that look like? That entails certainly giving them the bad news, but I don't, I don't even know that we start with the bad news always. If you look something like Acts 17, Paul will start with God as creator and his goodness. So I think there's just laying some some key foundational groundwork that you have to do, depending on your context, of understanding who God is, understanding who we are, and specifically those made in his image for his glory and yet fallen from that glory because of sin. And that's obviously leads to not just personal you know, bad feelings about myself, but the judgment of God. So I'm always keen to look at the example of the apostles in Acts. And one of the key themes that you can trace through almost every evangelistic encounter is the judgment of God. Christ's return is is sure because of his resurrection, and he will come to judge the world. So that has to be a component in what we preach. It's not necessarily what you lead with <laughs> your, your very first conversation but people need to know what they're saved from. And so often, I, again, I think our post-Christian context is, context is really important because we can assume that you could just tell people, Jesus loves you, died for your sins, and he wants to save you. And it's just, save me from what? My sins are what? Who is Jesus? Um, you need to, to really establish those key factors. So there's more we could say, but I think we want to say who God is, who we are, and ultimately who Christ is and what he has done for us, it has to then summons, be a summons, a call for a response to repent and believe. We just see that consistently in Jesus and his preaching, but also in the apostles. Yeah, that's good. I like, I like that. I want to return to the, the call for response later, but I think even what you just listed out there, I mean, there's a there's a good bit of defining of terms, right, that is involved in biblical evangelism. I mean, if, if you're going to really talk about the good news, then you're going to have to be able to explain what is sin, who is Christ, what is the gospel. So there, there's a lot of defining terms that goes into evangelism. You know, we're, we're talking on the uh, this season on the missionary task. What is it that missionaries are doing? How do they spend their time? What are the activities that they're engaging in? So, you know, it's one thing for us to define and think about evangelism, you know, let's say in our context here in North America, but how should missionaries think through cross-cultural evangelism? Yeah, that's a great question. Honestly, just this week, I was talking with a colleague at, at Training Leaders International. He'd spent a dozen years or so living in, in East Asia, and uh, he brought up this very topic. We were talking about teaching in different cultures, Western versus non-Western cultures, because that's that's our ministry right now is teaching church leaders. But he was just sharing one of the greatest joys he had while he was living on the mission field was talking with Chinese friends people who didn't believe in God, didn't have a concept of of the Christian God in any way, didn't have a biblical background or any kind of assumptions on sin or justification, you know, things like that. And yet when he presented the gospel, they received it and they believed it. And he was just saying, you know, the joy that that brings and the realization that we do truly have a transcultural gospel that speaks to any and every person and any and every background. However, and I don't want to undercut that. But at the same time, simultaneously, I'd want us to recognize there are cultural differences. And we do have reason to adapt 
what we say, how we say it for different contexts and cultures. And I think we we have justification for that, for, again, from the apostles, from Paul, you know, famously 1 Corinthians 9, to the Jew, he, he's like a Jew, to the Greek, like a Greek. We just see that play out in his apostolic preaching in the book of Acts, and Peter's as well. When, when speaking to Jews, they'll emphasize the fulfillment of God's promises in the Messiah, Christ, and his vindication through his resurrection, even despite their rejection. When you look at when they talk to to Gentiles, it has a very different flavor. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, reflecting on God as creator, God as good and gracious, and humanity as really responsible to him, and that, that Christ through his death and resurrection is the only way of salvation. So I don't want I, I want to emphasize the unchanging and transcultural nature of the gospel. It is true, and yet our approach needs to adapt based on who we're talking with. And that takes a lot of, uh, I think, study and intentionality and carefulness, because we can go wrong in contextualization, as, as you know. The Great Commission is a call to go. And a call to go is a call to prepare. Whether you're called to advance the gospel in your local church or on mission fields around the world, Southern Seminary is committed to preparing you for a lifetime of faithful ministry. Designed with flexibility and personalization in mind, the Master of Divinity in Great Commission Studies allows pastors, missionaries, and ministry leaders to prepare for their own unique call to ministry. It's designed to equip students with the biblical foundation and the practical training needed to present the gospel clearly in cross-cultural missional settings. To learn more about the Master of Divinity in Great Commission Studies, go to sbts.edu bgs or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School of Southern Seminary. There, you'll learn how listeners to this podcast can save $40 when applying for classes. That web address again is sbts.edu slash bgs. You know, one of the things I tell my students here at Southern is, you know, the Apostle Paul had quite the leg up on us when he went about doing his missionary work because he could travel throughout much of the Roman Empire and speak day one in the Greek language and communicate with his hearers. And that's just, we don't have the benefits of that in many places around the world today. And so there's years, oftentimes years and years of language and culture learning and these kinds of things to figure out, you know, what is the worldview here? How do I effectively communicate the gospel here? But like you mentioned, carefully contextualizing it to, to make sure that it's remaining within biblical parameters and guidelines and these kinds of things. So uh, that's good. You know, oftentimes when we think about evangelism. There are some people who are just kind of like, well, you know, I don't, I don't have that gift. I wish I was gifted in that. I don't have that gift. How should we think about the gift of evangelism? Are are some people just better than others? How do we how do we think through that? Well, I've I've definitely seen this as far as, and I'm sure your your listeners have seen this, where certain people seem to be gifted, have a knack for evangelism. I could just think of a, a woman right now in my Sunday school class in my local church who, I mean, I've heard from others and I've seen it in her where she's just constantly engaging non-believers. They're on her heart, her mind. She's praying for them. She's showing hospitality to them. She's speaking the gospel to them. And so, yeah, I mean, I want to identify folks like that and celebrate their work. I would just maybe want to acknowledge, though, that there's probably a little debate, even if there is such a thing as a gift of evangelism. You look at at Ephesians 4, those who are are listed there are the, the apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, 
those are people that are given to the church more than a specific, if you want to call it a spiritual gift, a talent or ability. So it almost looks more like a role to me than a specific gift. But I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to make too big of a deal about that. At the same time, I think it makes my point that we, we have to be careful just assuming certain things about that gift. Uh, but either way, even if you understand that, that evangelism is a, a gift, that doesn't give us the license to either not practice evangelism or not even pursue that gift. So we know elsewhere from scripture that Paul can encourage people who have a who don't have a gift to eagerly pursue a gift they don't have. And we we know, I mean, just practically, if someone has the doesn't have the gift of mercy or giving or serving, that doesn't make them exempt from ever giving or serving or showing mercy in the church. So if you don't have the gift of evangelism, I think that's okay. Rejoice in others who are better than you, but also eagerly pursue that ability and gift and try to exercise evangelism as much as you can. You know, one of the things that's increasingly popular in a digital world is digital evangelistic resources. So you have, you know, evangelism videos and evangelism apps and other things like that, that are just part of our digital world today. Can you share some of your thoughts on, you know, digital evangelism and the potential benefits or any potential concerns you might have? Yeah, I mean, it's it's undeniable that we're in an amazing time, unprecedented opportunities for evangelism, for apologetics, for people to access resources about scripture and get answers to questions they have. I mean, living in the Muslim world, this is a huge factor because there's so much fear and intimidation for people who are curious about what they believe, who are questioning Islam or curious about Christianity. Uh, to be able to go online to a kind of secure and and private place and and explore questions or to even request resources or Bibles. I mean, we saw that used effectively in many ways where we were. However, I would want to add a couple caveats to that. And that would be first, or at least some cautions, is that in many cultures around the world, and we're talking about cultural differences, relationships are so critical. Americans, Westerners are known for being more task-based, time-conscious, and other parts of the world, this is speaking in generalities, but it's generally true, they just value human relation, integrity, value of knowing someone over time, observing them over time. And you cannot just assume that a cold digital witness is going to be enough to reach people. They need to see both lived out witness from real people but then I think that's just critical to discipleship as well. And I would say our goal isn't isn't merely evangelism. Our goal is discipleship, to make disciples. And that requires lived out practice, uh, people being able to see you, how you interact with your wife, how you parent your children, how you deal with suffering or sickness, how you engage with the local church. All of those things are critical to the disciple-making process. And so the digital world can't can't replicate that, or even if we get to a point with meta where we can replicate it, it will not be the real thing. And so I would just, yeah, we can, again, we can celebrate the ways that this world and the technological advances have really given us opportunities. We need to still engage in-person evangelism and discipleship. Yeah, in-person relationships are critical and key. I appreciate you putting some emphasis there. 
you know, what, what if somebody wants to grow in uh, evangelism? You know, what are some practical suggestions, practical tips that you might give to those who are wanting to grow in that area? Learn to be a, a good listener. So before we were leaving for the field, we had uh, some friends who were in Papua New Guinea and they're, they're still there. And one of the first things they said is you need to, in a sense, show people how to listen to the gospel by how you listen to them. So teach them what it means to be a good listener and learner. And then when, when your time comes to speak to them, they'll have seen how you listen and care for them. So I just think that's, it's important to show love. It's important as well, because by, by being a careful listener, you just learn about that person's particular concerns, needs, desires, hopes, dreams. And so I, I just think it's really critical to becoming a, a better evangelist is becoming a better listener. I mean, we think first about the speaking aspect, but I think listening is really important. Another just skill you can develop is asking good questions. So we see this in the life of Jesus. Clearly, he's he, he loves to ask questions and it opens up people. You know, I've done some various work over my life, some journalistic work. And if you ask someone about themselves, they love to talk about themselves. That's just the nature of, of, of human beings. You show interest in them and get them talking, they'll, they'll talk about themselves. And um, I just think we can we can get better at asking really good questions, not just you know, open-ended about themselves, but questions about faith, about the true meaning of life. Where, where's your hope? What are you, you know, longing for? Where do you find peace? You know, beginning to ask questions and, and again, listening well as we do. I suppose there are so many other things we could say, just being a good friend, learning to be a good friend. Sadly, I think that because of our digital culture, we've lost some of those key soft skills of how to be good friends. And yet that's really, really important for the evangelistic task. I want to shift to some lightning round, you know, questions. The first one's kind of a fill in the blank question. So you can fill in the blank, however you want. The best evangelism tool is blank. Is it cheating to say the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> I'll go back to what I said, asking questions. So if your listeners aren't familiar, there's a book um, called Questioning Evangelism. I think that's a really helpful resource to, if I, if somebody were to say, what's one thing I could really do is start asking really good questions. And um, yeah, I think that resource is, is helpful. In your opinion, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, does biblical evangelism always include calling for a decision? No, I don't think so. In other words, I think you can do evangelism without doing the complete evangelistic task. The complete task does absolutely include calling for those who hear to repent and believe. So that's core to the task itself. But so much of evangelism is, you know, little quick conversations or short interactions or comforting someone as they're grieving and telling them of the hope you have in Christ. So I wouldn't want to box it in and say, you haven't done evangelism if you haven't called for someone to repent, believe, but you must do that to be faithful to the evangelistic task. What method or evangelism strategy or tool do you personally use? I don't know if this is a method or a tool, but hospitality is just our family's primary way of pursuing evangelism. So that can be inviting people into our home. It can be us going to others with gifts or other things. So, you know, with our neighbors, we just try to any holiday or special event, 
we try to take things to them and include scripture or a booklet or something about the gospel and try to strike up conversations around showing hospitality. I don't know if that's a tool, but that's that's just the way we learned it overseas, I, I think. And so we try to embody that here as well. Yeah, I think that's really, really powerful. As you mentioned, especially in more relational cultures, inviting people into your home, I think is a, a powerful tool that you're able to utilize. You know, if somebody came to you, Elliot, and said, hey, I've got somebody who's interested in following Christ. I feel like they're close, but I don't know. What book of the Bible would you encourage that person to read? I think I would just go to the Gospels. So Mark or John would be the two two I'd most likely encourage them to go to. All right. Last question. What is one word of advice for people who are nervous or fearful about sharing the gospel, sharing their faith? What's one word of advice you would share with those folks? What you're experiencing is so common. I mean, it's common to everybody I know. I've not met people who don't get nervous about this or, or don't struggle with evangelism, but I've never heard anyone who initiated a gospel conversation say afterward, I wish I hadn't done that. And so I think that's, we talk to ourselves and tell ourselves all the ways it's going to go wrong or all the things that are bad. And then every time we do it, we're so grateful and we're reassured in the spirit that this is what we should have been doing. So that's my encouragement. Yeah. Amen. Elliot, thank you so much for your time and for the conversation today. Yeah. So, so great to be with you. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.